Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. And this is our last episode of the year. And unfortunately, my co host, Peter Young, is out having a baby. He had a baby yesterday, Piper Young. So congratulations to him. So I've enlisted the help of a friend, Charlie Fu. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Robert. Congratulations, Peter and family. Charlie's a lawyer by day, but collector and drinker all other times and a wine berserkers moderator. And then we have Jane Anson, who's a decanter writer and author of Inside Bordeaux, a wine critic who is focused and based in Bordeaux. Jane, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. I'm very pleased to be with you all tonight. And last but not least, we have Carlton McCoy, who's a master sommelier and managing partner of Lawrence Wine Estates, which includes Heights Cellars, Damien Estates, and Burgess. Thanks for having me. So I thought in this show, it would be a little different. We kind of go over 2020 at a high level and talk about things that impacted the year, but then kind of predict how we see those things panning out for 2021. So obviously the year started, you know, it's been a rough year for everybody, but the year started with some groundbreaking news around wine tariffs and, you know, kind of a trade war between the US and the EU, especially around the wine section. And I'm curious And I guess I'll throw this to Jane first. Have you seen major impact with wine tariffs already or has it been masked by the COVID situation? There was an immediate impact. So I guess if we put it into historical context, November 2019 was when the first tariffs were brought in. I think the average is 20% on tariffs of all goods, but wine got particularly badly hammered and gets 25% on wines and whiskies, not sparkling wines, not Irish whiskey, but still, you know, a lot of those things, not Italian either. But the impact on the French wine industry was pretty dramatic straight away. And in fact, even before COVID happened, so maybe like April, May, so COVID was there, but not the impact on the trade so much. They were already saying that French wine was down 30% in terms of its exports into the US or its imports into the US. For Bordeaux, where I'm based, that was about 12% down. The figure's about 12% down, I guess, because the average price of Bordeaux wine being shipped into the States, probably a little higher than average, so slightly less impacted. But yes, for sure, it's been a huge impact. And then continuing on with COVID, it's been a very, very tough year for French wines. And then just now that we have the new administration coming in, there was this kind of thought that maybe things would get better. But the EU has now placed retaliatory tariffs on the US as of November this year. So just last month, I think American wine is not impacted, but other American drinks products are. And I guess the idea that there's going to be a quick resolution is kind of fading a little. There's a lot of problems in the country. I don't know if fixing tariffs is Joe Biden's number one play in January 1st. Yeah, probably not. And it's quite interesting. I just saw yesterday that he has, or at least there's speculation of who he's going to pick for his new trade expert. And that's a woman called Catherine Tai, who you guys probably know much more about than I do. But that seems quite interesting. But she's a very, very China-focused, fluent Mandarin speaker, had a lot of experience. She's a lawyer, obviously, a lot of experience dealing with the WTO, with Beijing, Washington. So it'll be interesting to see if she really is. I don't think it's going to be her number one priority by any stretch of the imagination. Carlton, I'm curious on your side, with increased tariffs, have you seen an increase interest or demand from that group that maybe would be buying things like Bordeaux into things like a high-end Napa wines? You know, we've obviously discussed it in our companies, and I think it's really difficult for us to quantify given other variables like COVID. We've seen a massive increase in direct sales from our brands, but, you know, it's really difficult to be able to sort of say this is COVID or tariffs. We've heard guests talk about it, but 
I think the reality is when I discuss with my friends over in France, especially the SKUs that they see hit probably the most were the entry level SKUs. So in Burgundy, it was the wines that were typically poured by the glass. They can't be poured by the glass anymore. And that really hurts the sales. When we talk about the upper echelons of society that can afford pretty much any wine they, they want to drink, if a bottle of wine is $300 or if it's $400, it really won't make a big difference. It's typically those wines that are under $100 on the shelf are hit probably the biggest, which is the vast majority of wine. It's, you know, it's 90% of wine. So for our SKUs, we definitely saw bottlings like the Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon from Heights sell out much faster because it's a very reasonable price point for the quality. But whether that was because of terrorists or because of COVID, it's really difficult to say. Makes sense. Speaking of, you know, we kind of started talking about COVID. Carlton, you mentioned on-premise restaurant sales. How has uh, COVID kind of impacted at least the difference between restaurant sales for your company and direct consumer? Yeah. So, you know, if a restaurant is open, they can't buy or sell wine. So we knew that was going to be an issue from the beginning. And it was a bit perfect time. And we started a company called Domain Estates, which was, you know, our own sort of self-funded negotiation company, both dealing with domestic and imports. And we hired on an incredible team, Chris Avery, who was the VP of sales for Opus One for a number of years and a dear friend for the last decade came on to be the president of that company for us. And Nick Holmes, who was their Western Territory Manager, came on to be our VP of sales. And they really helped us to take Heights, which was predominantly on-premise and really move a lot of that inventory and focus over to retail with a lot of the retail partnerships that they had on the high end. And that really helped us to sustain sales and revenues during that time. But you can only do so much in a short amount of time. We weren't the only winery that was attempting to make those changes. So we definitely saw a decrease in depletions for restaurants. And really where our focus was is was seeing how we could support restaurants. It's not a high margin business in a good year. So we knew that this could be a difficult year. So in a year like this, where most people were sort of tightening the belt, we really empowered our sales team around the country to actually go and support those restaurants and buy expensive wines, things like that, which most people thought was absurd. But for us, if restaurants don't survive, then it's going to hurt our business much more in the long run. So you know, when they were allowed to sell retail wine in New York, you know, we sent someone up there to start buying bottles of Krug and things like that, you know, just to support restaurants and keep them optimistic and going. But, you know, it goes without saying that restaurants being closed definitely has a very negative trickle down effect on the wine industry as a whole. You kind of mentioned the fact that the main estates is like the negotiation end and then there's a little more direct to retail interaction. How about like with Tasty Rooms and Napa? What's the change in that? Well, we were sort of just trying to adjust as the government placed new restrictions. And the team just had to be very, very agile, really sort of jump in and adjust. We're really lucky to have great weather in the Napa Valley. So we were already positioned to host guests outdoors anyway. So the team, especially at Heights, the first thing they did is we invested in a lot of outdoor furniture to be able to host people in different blocks around various vineyards. And we bought these beautiful Heights like off-road golf carts. They're really gorgeous and got them branded. So when guests came, everyone had a unique and individual private experience. Every guest was put into their own cart, brought up to their own table, and they had these sort of customized experiences, which the guests really, really enjoyed. It was very labor-heavy for us, but it gave us an opportunity to continue to develop those relationships with guests where a lot of other wineries sort of of shut things down or did the tented experience. We wanted to have something that still felt very authentic and true to the way we like to host guests, but to make sure that guests were very safe. We also ramped up our digital marketing budgets pretty dramatically to be able to continue to grow our outreach through social media 
through email campaigns, and even old school, which again, call me the old guy in the room. It was my idea to start a phone campaign. And believe it or not, when people are at home with COVID, they pick up the phone. So we were selling an enormous amount of wine just from picking up the phone and calling people and saying, hey, this is Joe from Heights Cellar. And selling wine, it was pretty crazy, but it worked really well. So we tried everything we could and it was very successful. We did three times the direct sales we did last year, which is incredible. Wow, that's a big number. Yeah. With kind of that increase in direct sales, do you feel it's more tariff-based? People are buying more American wine because it's a little bit less expensive because of the price hikes in French wine? Or are we talking about there's more focus and marketing and personal experiences that have increased their sales? Yeah, I think this latter. I think that sometimes we live in the world of what's happening in the wine industry. Most people are completely oblivious to things like wine terrorists. They read them in a headline here and there, but they got their own problems in their world. They're not concerned with that. There are very particular buyers who may buy very particular SKUs and have for years, and they may notice that increase. But also a lot of importers, they already knew about the tariffs. They really sort of loaded up these big containers ahead of time. So we didn't really see the increase. I have a very close friend who is an importer of Italian wine, and he just brought in tons of containers. And obviously he had a lot of money tied up in inventory, but he was able to hold prices for a while, pretty much until late spring to early summer. And that's when you really saw the increase in a lot of prices, especially from his portfolio. But whether or not the guests, the consumers really caught on to that that soon, I don't think so. If anything, they would just move into another skew. So if this Bordeaux or this Burgundy they liked is more expensive, they would essentially get another skew, a different producer, maybe a, a lesser appellation. But if you're going to drink Burgundy, you'll continue to drink Burgundy, I think. You just won't get the same quality for the dollar. I think that you're definitely right that that idea of pivoting direct to consumer and doing a lot more direct marketing that's more linked to COVID. The tariff effect, obviously, a whole other area. But the idea that the entire industry this year has really stepped up in terms of its direct marketing is because they had no choice because so many of their normal routes to market were closed. And there were people, as you say, people were sat at home. They had time on their hands. They were wanting to have some kind of personal relationship with people and they kind of maintain those parts of their normal lives that they would have done. And so... I think that the wine industry as a whole has done a great job of stepping up in that way. Jane, I've kind of seen some more social media being used in the traditional Bordeaux estates. Do you see that also because it being an impact of COVID, like kind of Carlton mentioned, where there needs to be more direct to consumer interaction, not just by phone? Bordeaux starts at a disadvantage because of the way that it's sold compared to a Napa wine, where Napa, generally speaking, even the very high-end Napa wines have a direct relationship with their consumers. And most Bordeaux wine estates are going through the layers of having your broker and then having your negotiant, so your merchant, and then going out to market. So they have a harder time knowing who they should be speaking to. Plus, the Bordelais tend to be generally pretty traditional in terms of how they do their marketing. So this year has been super, super interesting watching them kind of reacting. And I think at first, they weren't so good at it. So I've done a ton of work this year with a wine club in London that's called 67 Palmel. They have a club in London. They're opening one in Singapore. And they were so reactive. As of really two weeks after lockdown began, we started doing Zoom tastings that were direct. And not just Zoom tastings, but where we would have the sample bottles in really beautiful little glass bottles, which they closed with argon gas. So it held everything really well in terms of the quality. I would be tasting my kind of six samples. And then they'd have people on the other side of the screen with the same samples. We're all tasting together. And I know now we all do that such a no-brainer today. But back in March, that was really pretty impressive of 67 to be so reactive and get that going. And they got to the point where they were doing four of these a day, seven days a week from around the world, different producers. So I think that at first, if we just bring that back to Bordeaux, at first they were a little suspicious of would it work? 
can we trust that these samples will be good enough? And they really took their time, but they've seen how successful it's been. And now they're getting on board with that. I've seen that push on the samples. I started doing it in March myself with a few of my friends along the West Coast, and I'd ship it all along the West Coast. I don't know if Palm Oil is just local, but... No, no, it's all over Europe, all over the EU. Yeah, I just ship it all over California and the other side of the West Coast, and people wouldn't believe me and say, oh, you know, how does it degrade, you know, et cetera. And I had talked to a few of my friends, master SOM candidates, who were saying, this is how we use samples. Like, we would store these samples in our fridge in these small bottles for months, and it wouldn't degrade in quality. And we used it for our tasting notes, our testing. And I think since then, it's really caught on, like you said. And, you know, not just on the consumer end, but businesses. I'm doing a wine tasting at the end of the month with a winery that's sending barrel samples all over America. I think this is something that will stay. If we're thinking about what's going to happen in 2021, I think that, of course, there will be a return, we hope, to more in-person tastings. But I think we're not going to go back on the idea that this can work. That This idea is better for the environment as well. There's a lot of things that put it in the tick box that this is something that we should work out how to keep doing. Jane, I was wondering if you could talk a little about this year's on premiere tasting and how did that take place? Because that sounds like a major departure from anything even close to remote what I would have considered would have happened in Bordeaux in the past. Sure. And in fact, that wasn't brilliantly handled at first, I would say. So the UGC, which is the Union de Grand Cru, that's the group here that organized the on premiere tastings. They clearly wanted it to happen in the normal way, even though week by week, you were seeing the numbers kind of clocking up of COVID cases and more and more places locking down. And they just didn't come to a quick enough decision of what they were going to do. And I think I know it caused a lot of stress for journalists and buyers and people who come to Bordeaux normally. But anyway, about a week pretty much before they said, okay, it's not happening, it's off. And then we had about seven weeks of not being quite sure what would go ahead. And then in their defense, they totally kicked into gear. And they did a good job of getting samples to different groups of buyers, not just in France or in Europe, but also to the States, to Hong Kong. And it was a delayed campaign. So really, normally it happens kind of April to July, pretty much. This year, it was almost entirely focused in June. And where you might normally have 250 labels that released during En Primeur, this year, rather, it was around 100. So it was the wines that people wanted to buy, and it happened quickly. And the prices were good because well, because what we all know, because the global economy was not willing to support high prices. And in fact, I think it was a surprise to everyone just how successful on Primo was this year. But I am not sure. I think that the Bordelais would like it to go back to normal as quickly as they can. I hope that they keep some things that worked this year, but I'm not sure they will. Could you also talk a little bit about the restaurant scene in Europe and how is that maybe differed from what you've heard in the US? I'm just curious to get a, a wider perspective on premise channel for wineries. Sure. So we have the same issues in terms of restaurants having all on trade, having to close down. And we also have the same issues that you guys have in terms of rules changing and it being difficult. I can speak mainly about France and the UK, and there are big differences between the two. France is very, very good at putting money into supporting the restaurant trade and making sure that people can be effectively furloughed. So the same kind of deal as the UK and across most of Europe. But the French government were much clearer of saying, this is what's going to happen when, these are the rules, this is what you can and can't do. In the UK, really, the rules have changed every week. The restaurants, they've often heard about things via social media, via leaks to the media, as opposed to being told directly from the government what they can and can't do. So it's been incredibly tough for the British trade, not just restaurants, but nightclubs, pubs, bars, you know, the whole thing. And of course, it's tough in France. And in fact, I was just reading this week 
that the French industry expects 30,000 restaurants to file for bankruptcy. And if that's the case, even with the support they're getting from the government, it just breaks my heart to think what it must be like in the States. Yeah, Carlton, I was wondering if you had an insight on the restaurant scene in terms of there's going to be casualties. I've never heard a number, but I'm sure it's pretty big. Yeah, so there's an entire coalition of restaurateurs that have petitioned Congress to create some sort of relief. And to be very honest with you, there's been zero response. Over 100,000 restaurants in the US have already closed, probably permanently, which is a pretty massive number. When you look at most of those restaurants being independently owned small businesses. And that has a massive impact on the unemployment rate long term. And it's sort of less this sort of, I guess, losing a bit of faith in the in government overall, seeing large industries like the cruise lines get massive bailouts. I think they may have been the first industry to get bailed out with cruise lines with something like $60 billion or, or something ridiculous to bail out cruise lines. And then independent restaurateurs are sort of left to fend for themselves. So that's been really difficult to watch. And People like Will Gadara and Bobby Stuckey have been part of that coalition to really sort of drive Congress to create some sort of relief to really to Novell. So it's been really difficult to watch. A lot of my friends are still very much in the restaurant industry and they're struggling. Can I just add link to exactly what you're saying? I think that there is also a coalition of restaurant owners in the States who are lobbying, just to bring it back to the wine tariffs, who are lobbying to get rid of the tariffs and wine when the new administration comes in. Because obviously that makes another issue for the restaurants that even when and if they can reopen, having tariffs on the wine, as you said, right at the beginning, makes it difficult to then sell certain wines by the glass and etc. I think that that's a push to maybe roll back the tariffs to help the restaurant industry. What's been really clear is that there is no motivation from the US Congress at all to create any unique relief plan for the restaurant industry. And why that's so difficult is we often like to use the term trickle down economics in the US. It's, It's a great marketing term. But restaurants represent the best form of that. When you look at restaurants and how many industries they do support to small and large farmers, manufacturing companies, and all the people that are employed by all the products produced and used in restaurants, you can see how investing in restaurants right now would continue to sort of rebuild the unemployment rate to sort of help sustain those, especially sort of entry-level workers, which is really the heart of the workforce. We often think of these big industries, but it's the farmers, it's the people who just, for us in the wine industry, it's people who are out harvesting and pruning and, you know, and these sort of things and bottling and, you know, like all these industries that are supported by the restaurant industry. And to sort of see the lack of interest from the government to help these industries has been really difficult to watch. Actually, another thing that's connected to that that is potentially positive in France, and I hope this could also be true in the States, is a lot of insurance companies have not paid out on their policies because if restaurants are closed because of COVID, they've said, well, that wasn't mentioned in the policies and therefore we won't pay out. That's certainly been true across the UK and, and a lot of Europe. But in May or June in France, a restaurant in Paris successfully sued their insurance company. I think it was AXA, the insurance company. They successfully challenged the fact they wouldn't pay out and won it. I mean, I think that it wasn't a huge amount of 70,000 euros or something for two months worth of lost earnings. That creates precedence, which in the legal world is huge. Exactly. That's what they hope. So business interruption insurance in the US is a really difficult thing. Most notably, very soon after COVID shut down restaurants, Thomas Keller realized that he wasn't going to get a claim, that the insurance company had argued that essentially because of other natural disasters and so forth, that they had pretty much taken it out of insurance policies. So in the US, you're not seeing business interruption being paid at all. I mean, we obviously tried to have a claim for it because it's a very reasonable thing to have insured. 
But if you look at the fine print of a lot of insurance policies, it's not included in the case of various policies in the wine industry. They cover it when it's an issue of a natural disaster, but not just the natural disaster. It has to be some sort of virus or something that's created. So it's not the hurricane. It would be the bacterial infection created from the standing water in the hurricane. So the hurricane would not be enough of a premise for a claim. It would have to be some sort of bacterial growth because of it. So it's, it's really all in the fine print. You have to be able to be really savvy to read that fine print. But I think that's very likely not to happen in the U.S. because the government tends to support bigger businesses than smaller businesses here in the U.S. Yep, you're right. Well, I know that AXA is currently contesting the claim here in France. Yeah. But I think a lot of people are watching it carefully. It can sink an insurance company. Yeah. I mean, in fact, we haven't even talked about the other major issue this year is the fires. We had them in Australia, had them in California. And again, for the insurance companies, this is an enormous issue going forward. So before we jump over to the fires, I was wondering if we could give a wrap up on COVID in terms of, say, magically, you know, it looks like we have a vaccine that's eminent started rolling out in the UK. We're hopefully getting approval in the US. Obviously, it'll take time for that to all happen. But I'm curious on what does 2021 look like? It sounds like we're doing a lot of destruction to the on-premise scene, but like, I'm curious, what do you think 2020 looks like as we evolve and get a vaccine? Like, Do we go back to normal? Is it a full recovery or is it, are we paying the price for multiple years? I can definitely tell you that in Europe, they are still canceling wine fairs right up till June. So the big German wine fair, ProVine, that has now been canceled. There's absolutely no plans that OnPrimo, I think, will run as normal in March in Bordeaux, much as people might want it to. I think there's a realistic expectation that by the time vaccines really come through, we're talking at least summer 2021. So I think we have another six months of it being extremely difficult in terms of travel. And you know, we haven't even mentioned Brexit. Brexit is another huge headache for European winemakers. And I'm sure there'll be a knock-on effect for US winemakers as well. And so the French who have had to deal with pivoting away from the US, looking to more of Europe, they've had issues with China, which is slightly opening up again, China obviously, but big issues for the wines there. And then on January the 1st, you have potential tariffs coming in into the UK market as well. So I think that on top of COVID, there's definitely going to be a bumpy start to 2021. And Carlton, how do you see 2021? Yeah, I think we'd like to all believe that there's going to be a light switch that turns on and life will be sort of normal again. As humans, we do like routine and we like a bit of normalcy. You know, obviously it'll eventually return, but I don't really foresee anything that looks like normal returning until very late spring, early summer. Even once we get vaccines and there's this thing about PTSD of confidence of being able to interact. I mean, I personally, my girlfriend and I were watching a movie the other night and there was a scene where people were sort of like bunched up together with no mask on and we both looked like, you know, obviously this, this movie was filmed 10 years ago, but there is this sort of emotional response to it. Will we feel comfortable being in crowded rooms and on subways and things like that without masks? I don't think that's something that's going to return very quickly. And there's economic repercussions to this. You know, a lot of companies have gone out of business and they're not going to return overnight. So how does that affect the economy overall? The housing market is in certain areas, you know, it's expanded in other areas, it's falling apart. So how will that respond? Right now, we've seen the stock market go sky high, but typically in America, what goes up must come down. So that's the economic cycle of this country. So if you were to predict, you'd probably see there's going to be an economic downfall in the next year. So we should all sort of be prepared for that optimistically, like I would love the light switch to go on, but it's not very likely. Yeah, I think that's right. And actually, a lot of airlines as well, they have shut down so many routes that even after things kind of pick up, it's going to take time for the number of routes flying, certainly between European cities and the States or Australia and Asia. It'll take time for those routes to be back in place. 
Carlton, do you see those direct decline experiences you're doing at Heights? Are you going to continue doing it even when COVID ends, like kind of this more personalized, really focused type of tasting with the golf carts, et cetera? Personally, during this time, we continue construction on our new tasting room. So that was a bit of a blessing in disguise where a lot of projects got halted. We were able to actually double down and get double crews onto our project to try to accelerate the construction. So we'll be opening a brand new tasting experience in the very late spring, early summer with the anticipation that people will be wanting to go out. But it's a bigger lavish experience. So everyone is very socially distanced just by design. But we will continue the experience up at the winery as well to give people options. We have seen an uptick in visitation here during certain times, especially on the weekends, not from people from out of town, but people who can drive in. You know, They are coming to the Napa Valley on the weekends, I think, to get out of their homes. But now that the weather's turned, we don't really have that option anymore. And if I can speak to 67 Palmal on that same question, the feeling now is after eight or nine months of doing Zooms, that there's a fatigue in terms of the quality that you can get with a Zoom. So what we're looking at doing, and again, this is led by Grant, who's the CEO of 67, is to start to kind of launch a TV series. So there's going to be a 67 Palmal TV, which will be launching in March of next year which is much higher, shot in 4K, you know, real. I mean, it will be like a YouTube channel, effectively. It won't be to an actual television, but it's going to be high quality. And again, this idea of being global, so coming from every wine region around the world, and just to take the idea of this intimacy that we've managed to create all of us over the year of going direct to consumer, but trying to marry it with something more long-term with much higher quality production values. That makes sense. You're kind of seeing that multimedia is able to get to consumers in a way that you couldn't do it before. And people are more receptive to consuming multimedia. I mean, we look at podcasts. Podcasts are a huge growth portfolio. I mean, you see a bunch of people doing podcasts. Like Psalm TV has multimedia, just like Jane, you're mentioning with Paul Ball 7. And then the way they're going to jump into interaction too. That's probably one of the most exciting things that I've seen come out of COVID is we're able to see multiple ways to access consumers and wine lovers in general. Yeah, I agree. It's a good sense of creativity. Although apparently there's also an increase in phishing attacks, inevitably. Whenever there's a rise in direct-to-consumer from the good guys, there's also a rise in direct-to-consumer from the bad guys. Jane, you actually launched a book during COVID. And I was wondering if you could talk about that. I'm sure that that publicity tour was a little different than maybe you would have imagined. <laughs> so this year... In January, I was you know, super, super, super excited. I had a launch in London, in Bordeaux, in Amsterdam. I was coming to New York in June, DC, and then going to be in California in September and October. And of course, I was due to launch in March. We were being printed in Italy, in Verona. So when it was all kicking off in China in January and February, my publishers and I were like kind of tapping ourselves on the back going, oh, we're so clever. We're not being printed in China. We're being printed in Italy. And then the first place in Europe to really explode was Northern Italy. We were being published with Graphicom and they're based in Verona. So Northern Italy. First, paper got very scarce because all of the publishers who would have published in China switched on to get over to the European publishing houses. And there was a huge run on paper. And so we were delayed by about a month for that. And then the Italian government closed down printers and publishers. And then there was a lobbying from the publishing houses saying that we're essential. So they reopened. Finally, we got the book published. But the day that it got to London, because we were published by Berry Brothers, that's a wine company in England, but they have a separate publishing arm. And so they were publishing. And the day that we got the book, literally, they put their entire staff on furlough. So the books got to the UK, but they couldn't get out. 
So I'd seen one book, but nobody else had seen it for a month. So, you know, when you have a book out, it's like any new product you've been working on that you love. And I had a month of not knowing if anybody was going to like it. There was no reaction, no reviews or anything. So that was tough. But anyway, we finally got it out in May. And my year has been a lot of book launches with Zooms to kind of sommeliers around the world and book clubs. And it's actually been wonderful. And the reaction's been great. We've printed 10,000 for the first print run, which is pretty good because it's a hardback. It's a big book. It's um, like 700 pages. It's about $80 in the US. It's being sold through Sotheby's Wines. The way we've done it is it's going through specialist wine companies around the world. We're like very, very close to finishing the first print run, which I really thought back in May, it would be impossible to sell books this year. But everyone's at home. It's been something positive and the reviews have been great. So yeah, in fact, it's been a very, very positive experience, but not what I thought it was going to be in January. Sorry to interrupt, but we didn't even get the title of your book. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that you need. Thank you very much, Charlie. I can show you guys, although it won't be seen, but anyway, it's called Inside Bordeaux. It's a deep dive into the Bordeaux region, but I have really tried to approach it in a totally fresh and new way where I've looked at Bordeaux and thought, normally Bordeaux kind of seeds all the high ground of terroir and kind of winemaking skill to Burgundy. And so I've really kind of gone underground. I've worked with um, a lot of professors and specialists here to do, we've got about 70 entirely new maps that are created for this book. And I've looked a lot at the terroir, the different soils across different parts of Bordeaux. But I've tried to make it easy, understandable, fun. I've written every single word of the book. And normally books of this size have like 10 different contributors doing different areas. It's me doing the whole thing. And I hope from that, it's a book which takes Bordeaux and makes it a little bit more approachable, a little bit more interesting. Everybody that I've included in this book is because I think they're worth knowing about. I've tried to look at biodynamic, organic, you know, new producers who are doing interesting things, orange wines, all kinds of kind of pushing at the boundaries of Bordeaux, along with obviously also the classified estates. The reaction has been really, it's a fresh look at Bordeaux. So I learned something. I knew that there was a run on toilet paper. I didn't realize there was a run on book paper as well. (laughs) Every paper, you name it. (laughs) I went through the book a little bit online and I saw just beautiful maps, pictures, descriptions. I think, you know, like you mentioned, it's not a new take, but a fresh take. And I think it's kind of what any Bordeaux lover really needs to be a part of. Kind of like Clive Coates' Inside Burgundy book is kind of relevant to all Burgundy drinkers. Your book is the same kind of the scope and the breadth of knowledge. Yeah. This is the same publisher, Jasper Morris, did Inside Burgundy. And he did it 10 years ago. And the bar was so high for me to reach up to do a book that was going to equal Inside Burgundy. And I hope I got somewhere close. So I definitely, the reaction's been great. Perfect. To pivot to another key thing that occurred in 2020, I mean, we've seen the advent of social justice movements and Black Lives Matters. Carlton, I know this is something that's near and dear to your heart. Where have you felt the wine industry has really focused on? looking into dealing with diversity and social justice matters since it's been pushed into the forefront of our communities. Sure. You know, what I'll say is, you know, when you look at the Black Lives Matter movement, they're all sort of a continuation of, which has been the same movements that have been going to the country for a very long time, over a hundred years, which is really about the country fulfilling its promise for everyone being equal. And it's always just been rebranded every, call it 10 years with a new organization, but it's really part of the same thing. And it's not unique to Black people at all would just seem to be the most outspoken because probably the demographic in the U.S. has probably bear the largest grunt of the oppression inequality of the country, unfortunately. And, you know, I think that I tend to try to take positive trust in a lot of things. And I just thought it was just really incredible to see 
the diversity of people who were supportive of it. I remember listening to a short speech that Barack Obama did when he sort of was trying to draw some comparison to the current movement to what was happening in the 60s. And he said the biggest difference was when you look out the window, you see a lot more different diverse shades of people marching together. And I think that says a lot about the direction that the country is going in. I know that we all want things to change overnight, but cultural systems that have been set up over centuries aren't going to change in one summer of protests. But it's been incredible to see the change that's happened so fast. And obviously, every industry behooves them to sort of take a look at themselves and say, okay, we've all played some sort of role in it. And how do we sort of change that? And how do we progress? And I think it's been very impressive to see the industry sort of jump in and start to contribute and start to envision what that looks like in in the future, you know, in the U.S. Have you seen kind of the best term I could think is, have you seen people put their money where their mouth is, especially when we come to larger corporations and businesses? In some ways, in a lot of cases, not. I think what we saw during that time, unfortunately, like a lot of things in this country is humanitarian issues became political issues. So things like the Black Lives Matter movement became, oh, no, this is some weird socialist communist movement. You know, there was videotapes of one of the ladies who started the organization claiming that she was a Marxist. So obviously the entire movement became a Marxist movement, which that would validate the comment. And obviously I'm not a Marxist. I don't believe in that, but I do believe in obviously racing equality. So I think that you saw a lot of companies that didn't want to fall on the side of more liberal politics sort of steer clear away from contributing to the movement. And hopefully that'll change once the air clears up a bit and people realize that it actually is a humanitarian, it's, it's an American issue. But as someone who's co-founded an organization that's trying to make some positive change within our industry, you know, we've been very fortunate to get quite a bit of donors to contribute. And we've been able to give out an enormous amount of scholarships just in this time, which is great. There's one thing to be very loud and very outspoken about issues, which that is a very important part of any movement to bring awareness. But then there has to be follow through and there has to be action. And myself and a few of my friends really felt empowered in that call to action to be a part of the change and co-founded various organizations that have been able to secure quite a bit of funds. But there still are a lot of the larger wine companies that have just been really silent and not really contribute. And again, it's, it's not a, a blame game. It's just, you know, what do we want the country and what do we want our industry to look like in 20, 50, 100 years? And I'd say the best way to show your opinion is with funding, fund the efforts and push it forward. Kind of to touch base on what you were just saying, Robert knows, but I ran a charity raffle in June and we raised about $60,000 in less than 48 hours just on Instagram and Facebook for the NAACP legal fund. And how you said it was a political thing, there were a lot of my conservative friends were like, no, we're just not going to donate it. We don't agree with what the NAACP legal defense fund stands for. I'm like, they stand for equality for all people. They don't stand for demolishing your conservative beliefs or anything. They're just, we're all fighting for equal rights for everyone. Yeah. And if they look at like when that was created by like Thurgood Marshall, the whole thing was like to be able to defend civil rights fighters who couldn't afford like legal fees because they were impoverished. They couldn't afford lawyers. So when you had local governments that were enforcing very unfair laws, throwing these people in prison without due process, they needed people to defend themselves. That's still what's happening today. While I'm not a big fan of things like rioting and so forth, I'm a very peaceful person when it comes to this. I'm more Martin Luther King and less Malcolm X in the movement. I also understand that I'm not one to tell people how to express themselves. And unfortunately, in the country where our press is really driven by big headlines and what people want to see, they want to see drama, they want to see action movies. That's what you have to do to get people's attention in America. Silent, quiet movements in America just really don't work much anymore. 
because we've over sensationalized everything. We want movies with explosions. So it's the reason why the press focused on the few people who were breaking glass windows instead of the millions of people who were just peacefully walking through streets because people don't want to watch that. So it's unfortunate. I don't support it, but I understand that in some cases it's necessary. And that really polarized things for a lot of people when they started to watch their news networks and they saw that and they said, well, I don't support that small niche of people being violent, being silly, so I won't support it all. And that's what I mean by we need to sort of pull all of this out of politics and try to define, I think, what we all want the country to be. Put politics aside, like it should have nothing to do with this. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Jane, where have you seen kind of in the, on the UK side, I know there's been an embrace on this type of equality movement in the UK, even though we're on the other side of the pond, so to speak. And I know these type of issues are near and dear to everyone's hearts. I mean, I think that you did a great job in the States of raising an awareness, which then rippled out to the rest of the world who could very easily have said, well, the problem's more entrenched in the States. There was segregation issues for far, far, far longer in America than in other countries. But actually, what most people did was stop and think, actually, this is an issue which affects absolutely everybody. And you look at the wine industry, since we're talking specifically about the wine industry, it is a predominantly white industry. And it's really something to look around and see the diversity that needs to be taking place. And that's incredibly important. So where you started a lot of stuff in the States, in the UK, the movement has really been kind of centered around trying to identify opportunities for people who want to get into the industry who don't necessarily see people like them at the moment. So there's a guy called Max Janjo, who you, you might know, he runs his own company called MJ Wine Cellars. And he got together with Jancis Robinson, who obviously is, is kind of an industry leader. And they launched a site, which is called BAMEWineProfessionals.co.uk. And it's for where you can kind of register if you're looking for work or if you have work or if you have opportunities. It's really kind of a site to bring people together. And then you have big companies like Louis Roderer. They've run wine awards for years for writers to kind of reward wine writing. This year was the last one of those awards. And they have now pivoted away towards establishing a diversity scholarship, which they'll be doing going forward. But I really agree. It can't just be a couple of high profile movements. It has to be something which everybody in the wine industry takes a positive action themselves or even down to small things. Like if I am interviewing people for an article, you've got to think, don't always call the same people that you always ring to get quotes. Have a look in your Rolodex or the equivalent and reach out to different voices and different people. So that's something I think that we all have to do. So we talked about the Black Lives Matter and how that impacts the wine industry. But there's also been, you know, a number of scandals around women in wine and, and specifically the Court of Mass Sommeliers. And I was wondering, I don't want to pick on that organization because I think this is an action of individual people, but I'm curious on your take as an MS. Carlton, are you surprised or is it about time? And how do you see that evolving, not only just for race, but also for gender and making sure that things are more equitable across the board? As someone who was raised by women and by Black women, I was raised by the Black side of my family. The inequality of gender in the world is not a surprise to me. And some would argue that it's a bigger issue than race. We have to remember, if not mistaken, in the U.S., I think black slaves were allowed to vote before women were in some states. Men have, I think, enforced their self-imposed superiority over women since the beginning of time. So to say that anyone would be surprised that any industry had issues with sexual harassment, that would be a really silly statement. The Quartermaster Assemblies is a hospitality organization that is based around people who worked in restaurants predominantly to begin. And if you worked in a restaurant, do you understand this is a very prevalent culture in restaurants? It's a very promiscuous culture. You know, if you've read Anthony DeWording's Kitchen Confidential, this is pretty much if you work in a restaurant, you've worked in a restaurant like this at some point in your life. So I don't think anyone was surprised. 
And I think the organization is obviously doing everything they can to try to create systems that essentially you're looking at an organization that was started by sommeliers now being forced to turn into an actual properly structured organization with HR department and all these other things that we do in companies to make sure that people work in a safe environment or in a safe environment. And, you know, I hope that other companies and organizations are looking at and going, look, we need to do that as well. So that the same thing doesn't happen to us. Hopefully the reason they're doing it, it's not to protect the company, but to protect the people who are in the organization. But again, this is only a sort of small test model of what happens in society. We have a big issue in our society with gender rights and sort of preconceived notions of societal and gender roles, which has played the human race for a long time, but definitely in this country. And I think I'm very happy to see that finally that has come to the forefront as well, along with the race issue, because it's as big, if not a larger issue than the race is the gender issue. France has a particular take on that, I would think. I mean, the UK industry is probably similar to the American one. The French industry, I think, has a whole different level of very entrenched sexism, which plays out in every kind of area of life in France. And the French wine writing community is also, it's incredibly closed. There are really kind of five big male wine journalists who have a kind of stranglehold on what gets written about and where does it go. There are really very, very few wine media and not so many bloggers. And it's difficult for, I think, for young wine writers to kind of come through. And just this month or a couple of weeks ago, there are two, you know, the Betan and Dessauve, they're the two big French wine kind of critics. And they have a magazine, which is called On Magnum. It's like a, a wine guide. And last month, they published a cartoon within the magazine, which was called COVID Requires New Strategies. And it had a tall blonde woman who was wearing this kind of revealing dress. And she was talking to a, a wine merchant. And she was basically saying sexual favors for getting her wine into the shop. And the name of the woman was similar to a real woman in the French wine trade. And that created this a big explosion, not just because it was published, but because when female journalists called it out, the main entrenched French journalists who have a lot of power came back to those women and told them to basically shut up, that they didn't have the right to question anything, that they were being stupid. It was something you could have expected in 1970s that is still happening in France today. So that was not surprising to me, but was shocking that they felt they had no compunction in being so publicly dismissive of the women who objected to this cartoon. So I think that the French wine industry has a really a serious reckoning to go through in terms of this entrenched power of a small number of white older males who are all 50 plus, 60 plus. Yeah, and it's their inability to evolve and understand that those days are gone. And that especially the younger generation, they're not going to deal with that. It's not just in the wine industry. I mean, look at the art industry. I, I dated a contemporary artist for a number of years. And there is a really big culture of women having to offer sexual favors to get their art in galleries. and galleries. It's a huge part of the culture. And no one talks about it. It's just as big as, as the wine industry. It's an issue within our society. And the world is going through a race reckoning. This is a bigger issue. The race issue will be solved a lot faster than the gender issue. Because males of all races have always tried to impose power over women. And for me, as someone who's been raised in by single grandmother, that is, who's raised multiple generations, you know, I watched her not have much opportunity, really focus on education, educate herself, work really hard and just hit this glass ceiling that is a black woman in the nation's capital. I was raised in Washington, D.C., not be able to excel. That's an issue that will take a lot longer to solve. It's one of the interesting things about this year with COVID is that, as we know, 
a lot of these inequalities have been exposed because who has been most affected by COVID? It's a lot of the women who've had to stay home to look after the children. A lot of the communities where there are high minority populations aren't able to stay home to protect themselves, have to go out to work, do the service jobs. So are then more on the front line of getting infected. I mean, it's been such an interesting year for really, really crystallizing these things that we all knew. We all knew them, but it's too easy to gloss over them. But this year, we have not been able to look away from the problems. Yeah, and if you combine it, it's women of color have the worst go at it in every society in the world. Yep. That's something that we have to really continue to take seriously, even after COVID can dies, we hope, dies down over the next year. But these issues have to be taken seriously and continue to be addressed. Definitely. I mean, we see you know, the whole world needs to change in the way we interact with all people, not just you know the predominant wealthy white male, especially in the wine industry, but also another kind of reckoning that we have going on, which is not society-based, but environmentally based, is the California wildfires that we touched on briefly, I believe Jane mentioned earlier on. And to say we must think about Australia as well. And it was not just California, but, but Australia had devastating fires as well. Definitely. Yeah, Australia and California. I mean, I've seen the pictures of the koalas and the kangaroos just covered in ash and suit. And I know it destroyed basically the outback but Carlton in California, how's it impacted, you know, the way you're doing wine in California, crop insurance, great pricing, vintage reputation, and kind of foreseeing how you market to people if they have fear of fires or if they don't. Sure. Well, I mean, one thing is before I lived in California, I lived in Colorado. I was in Colorado for nine years in Aspen and we had issues with wildfires there. And the more you research, you find out that wildfires have been a part of the history of the West, especially in California, for a very, very long time. The Napa Valley Register did an article back in 2005 where they did a huge study. And this is before the 17 fires, 18. This is just them doing research. They looked at the last 100 to 200 years of fires. And pretty much like clockwork, every 10 years, there was always one part of the valley that was always on fire, which motivated them to do even further history to find out that fires have always been a part of the West. And for some reason, we tend to forget these things. And I guess we maybe it's ego. We just think it's not going to happen to us. And what we've seen is the California government continuously defund efforts for controlled burns and fire retention and prevention. Part of this is because of what are good natured people trying to drive environmental issues to protect forests and protect species. But what it did was it turned a blind eye to what even Native Americans did long before we were here, which is to create controlled burns to try to, I guess, manipulate nature so that we can actually inhabit areas because we are the unnatural thing here, right? The Napa Valley only has a very recent history of having civilization there. And really what our goal with any civilization is to be able to naturally manipulate nature in a way that prevents everything that we have from being destroyed. And what I'd say is that the Napa Valley as a whole needs to spend more time and funds to do their own research to find out what is the history of wildfire here, why are they created, what we can do to prevent them without completely destroying our own forest and protect the people who live here. I think we're just at the point where we're starting to look at it from a long-term perspective of if our goal is for the valley to be here in the future, the way we currently have it, then we have to take some sort of action. You can't just sort of sit there like the last generation and just hope it doesn't happen to you. Because that's really foolish and nature will win, right? What we're fighting against is what naturally happens here. It's my opinion that solutions will only happen if the community comes together as a whole. There's no individual effort by any one winery is going to prevent the next fire. Kind of speaking on the fire 
the most recent one hyped the company acquired Burgess Sellers and then you know the fire impacted it negatively. What's kind of the transition on that with the business? Burgess Seller was started in 1972, but the winery that Burgess Sellers was in was actually built in the 1880s by the Ponchettes and the Rossini. So it was a very old historical stone winery that was still standing. We were still making wine there. So it was really heartbreaking to see that structure burn down in this fire. But what we also start to see historically is there's a reason why a lot of those wineries that were in the mountains are no longer there because they also burned down years ago. So again, it's history repeating itself. And for some reason, we tend to not want to pay attention to it. We thought we were sort of in the clear a little bit in fire season. We had gotten these fires that came out in August that started because of a lightning storm, which we found out historically had been the cause for a lot of wildfires in the past for lightning storms that happened in the late summer. So we thought we were sort of in the clear. And I was having dinner at Bouchon when I found out about the glass fire. And my COO called and says, Carlton, we got an issue with Burgess. And I said, how could we have an issue? We literally just bought it two weeks ago. We haven't even gone into the office yet. But what could the issue be? He's like, it's surrounded with flames right now. The fire grew so fast that we didn't even get notification that the fire had started. The first notification we got was, your winery is completely surrounded in flames. So we woke up the next morning and the winery was completely gone. Luckily, the vineyards were very safe. Vineyards are an incredible natural fire break because at this part in the year, we've mowed down very closely our cover crops as to not create any further competition with vines and to help retain water. So that really isn't an issue. The only people who had real issues in their vineyards are people who didn't maintain the cover crop in the late season. And what it did is it actually protected a lot of the buildings in the Napa Valley that were in the middle of vineyards because it does protect them very well. So Burgess is unfortunately gone. And you know we jumped in with our team right away and started to look at what we could do for reconstruction and so forth. As far as insurance claims are concerned, you're looking at two different waves. The first wave of fires that came in August, while they didn't affect much of the Napa Valley proper as far as fire damage, the smoke damage was the worst that anyone had ever seen. Because it happened in the middle of the growing season, you have to remember that typically fire season is post-harvest or at the very, very, very end of harvest. But we really hadn't had issues with smoke in the middle of August. We were fortunate enough that we brought in about 20% of our fruit before the smoke hit the valley, before the fires started. But after the fire started, we were informed by our insurance company that if we picked any fruit, then we wouldn't be able to have a claim. So we left 80% of our fruit on the vine, which was very difficult to see. One, because it was an incredible vintage and we were able to harvest perfect flavors at very low bricks for the style that we make. That's exactly what we wanted. So it was a little heartbreaking to see this like perfectly flavored, beautiful, fresh, crunchy fruit on the vines and not be able to pick it. But I can't speak for the whole valley. I don't know what other winery situations are. And I think that my personal opinion is I think it's been very irresponsible for other winemakers and wineries to make these big sweeping statements about the valley. I think it only does a lot of damage and it shows a bit of ignorance on writers' side to make these statements. They have zero scientific proof whatsoever. And it's really foolish. It's like sensationalism. They're like Fox News and CNN writing these stories. And if you're living in the Napa Valley reading them, it actually devalues their legitimacy, frankly. It's really foolish. It's like the TMZ of wine writing these stories. And the Napa Valley is an incredibly diverse scape. So trying to get a a grasp as to what the smoke damage was, it's going to take us a couple of years to actually find out. You know, and frankly, the science of smoke taint is very far from being secured and finalized. No one actually understands the science at all. I'd say Australia is definitely leaps and bounds ahead of the US in their research and understanding, but they still don't understand it. Like, we don't understand how smoke attacks and affects grapes as far as the end product and what levels of certain glycol and four methyl glycol. We don't even know if we're testing for the right things fully. 
in what happens during fermentation, what happens after the wines age, what happens when you bottle them six years later. Because the smoke taint, as far as aromatically and flavor profile actually perceive, sometimes it doesn't show until four years after you've bottled the wine. They've had instances where actual fermented aged wine, stainless still, never touching a barrel, because you can get those same compounds from a barrel, have showed no signs. And then four years later, the bottle is reeking of smoke. So we're really at the very beginning of understanding this in the research. And I wish that people would focus their energy on answers instead of trying to make headlines. And it was just really disappointing in what was already a very horrible year for the wine industry to see wine writers who I would hope are there to be supportive and celebrate the industry to do such damage to such an important region. I thought it was very irresponsible journalism. Peter and I interviewed Anita Oberholster, who's the head of the Smoke Task Force at UC Davis, and she said exactly the same thing. What she did say, there's a huge collaboration with Australia and any other place, and I think Chile has fires as well. But she said, yeah, the science is like, they're just starting. She's like, they're years away from being able to have concrete answers on anything. We've taken pre-ferments. We did 120 five-gallon bucket pre-ferments from vineyards that we had anywhere from Coombsville to Calistoga, from the valley floor, all the way to 2,400 feet on High Mountain. We did all of these ferments. We sent them to multiple laboratories. And sometimes the identical samples we sent to laboratories twice, different results every time. The laboratory results are very far from accurate and everybody knows it. So instead of everyone being vulnerable and just saying, we don't know, no one knows, everyone has this pressure to have answers. And I think it only does damage and it will never render a result that's going to help the wine industry. The science is very unconfirmed. You've obviously erred on the side of caution because you're saying you left 80% of your fruit on the vine. No, no. We brought some in to do pre-ferments. There was two waves of smoke that came into the valley. So we brought things in and we were allowed because of the insurance company to have a crop insurance claim. You have to do the pre-ferments. You have to send those in. So we did berry samples and then we did pre-ferment samples. So we did everything. Some blocks were tested and sent in four times because there are a lot of the esters and so forth and the compounds that only are released during fermentation. So you have to go through that process and you have to make sure it's fully extracted. So we did all of this to make sure it was really clean. We didn't inoculate any of them. We did native ferments on all of them to make sure that it was as pure as possible, that nothing went into these ferments but grapes. I wasn't the only one. Everyone here quietly knows that they got multiple results from the same laboratories on the same samples, different results every time. There is no proper science that confirms smoke taint. It does not exist anywhere in the world consistently. I'm sure that is absolutely correct. Speaking as somebody who loves Napa and cares deeply about you know, a lot of the wineries there, looking from the outside as it was happening, I don't know which journalist you're referring to, but I found a lot of the coverage was very powerful, very moving, and really helped to understand how serious it was. So I'm not sure which specific articles you're referring to. No, no. So to understand, to publicize what was happening in the Napa Valley, I thought was great. It was great to see the support. But when we started to see articles that had headlines like 80% of Napa Valley's wine crop lost, which you can Google it, they came up everywhere. That was very irresponsible and incorrect, actually. It was just incorrect. And that was happening while there was still smoke in the valley and people hadn't even harvested fruit. So I'm not speaking at all to people being supportive in the press. There was a massive outcry of support internationally from the press, which we were very, very appreciative of. Because just like Australia, it's something that has plagued our wine region and behooves us to do a bit more research to find out how we can prevent it. What I was referring to were the articles that came out that reference percentage of loss in the Napa Valley. Right, before anybody knew what there really was. Correct. And the question was, did you talk to every winemaker in the Napa Valley to come up with that number? And the answer is going to be no. 
I just thought that it was about as sensationalist and TMZ driven as you can be. And the sad part, it was from some big names, some very important publications, which is very sad to see. Speaking of, Jane, you mentioned Australian fires. Do you have any particular knowledge in regards to the, I know it hit the southern regions where the really cool, like cool climate stuff is going on in Australia to kind of go back to a different style of winemaking. Yeah, there was a lot around Yarra and Kangaroo Island, which is a beautiful part of Australia. They lost, the devastation was really quite incredible. I think that, again, as with California, it isn't a one-off just this year. The problem is just when the industry tries to get back on its feet and then another wave of fires comes the next year and it becomes incredibly difficult in terms of long-term planning. So there's a, a guy here called Jacques Lawton who has made wine in Australia for about the last 10 years and who has a property on Kangaroo Island. And he now has stepped back. He's not replanting. He's going to see he's cut all the vines right down as low as he possibly can. He's seeing what natural regrowth will occur. And he's able, the good thing about Australia, as with Napa, is you're able to buy in grapes and to continue the brand. That would be much more difficult if it happened in parts of of Europe. But I think he's probably, he's going to walk away from making wine there. And it's interesting in Napa, you have a lot of French, particularly Bordeaux winemakers who have recently bought properties in Napa. And I'm thinking of the Catillards who just this year bought, came in and they haven't been able to visit their winery since they bought because you've had COVID plus you've had the fires and all kinds of issues. So yeah, it's tough. Well, clearly 2020 was a trying year across the board, especially for the wine industry to say the least. So hoping that 2021 starts to show the light at the end of the tunnel. I didn't want to end on such a somber note. So I was wondering if we could do a quick lightning round of a couple of questions that I have for you guys. And I'm going to include Charlie in this since he's a special guest. So best wine book that you've read in 2020. And Jane, you can't say your own. (laughs) Damn it. Okay, well, I'm going to just think then. You guys go first. I can go first, sure. It's not really a new book. I don't know why I forgot that Jasper Morris is the one that wrote Inside Burgundy, but I had downloaded his iPad version. And it's been quite riveting looking at all the updated maps and charts, all the books. I don't spend a ton of time reading wine literature, but as a Burgundy lover, that is really incredible to see everything in such detail on an iPad opposed to reading the tome, which I don't have space for. <laughs> I also, after passing the master's building exam, I committed myself to trying to focus on just my work and day-to-day than reading a lot of books. But I do spend a lot more time listening to podcasts though than I ever have on wine, especially with interviews. And I can say, for me, I think it's been one of the most gratifying things is to listen to all these incredible interviews over podcasts to be able to connect with and learn from winemakers that I may have never had the opportunity to meet and get a sort of inside track. But one book that I have dug quite a bit into because it's sort of, it involves where I currently work. is a book by Robert Benson called The Great Winemakers of California. It was published in the very early 70s. And it really is like in that era, every great winemaker of every great estate that you could name with multi-page interviews their philosophies, their stories, how they made wine at the time. And it's been a great opportunity to sort of learn from the past and from those people who have passed on to get some references, sort of how to guide our hand with winemaking. I would agree about podcasts as well. I've listened to a lot of podcasts this year. And there's one that's called Wine for Normal People with Elizabeth Schneider, which I really enjoy. And one of the things I've liked about the stuff that Elizabeth's done this year is she also released a book, which I guess was probably out at the end of 2019, but that I have read this year. And we're talking about diversity and reaching out and trying to get people who don't normally switch on to wine to get them interested. And she did a book called Wine for Normal People. And I think she's done a great job of kind of establishing herself. She is a som, but she's kind of set out to speak to people who don't normally connect with wine. I think she's done a really good job of that. So I've enjoyed that. I've looked into quite a lot of history books. 
there's a book I'm reading at the moment about the East India Company, which is this brawling behemoth kind of trading company. And again, it's being in Bordeaux, somewhere that has been built on trade over 2000 years of having the waves of you know, the Romans, the English, the Germans, the Dutch, so everyone's been here. So I've thoroughly enjoyed reading this history of the East India Company, which just talks about really the first truly global trading company. Yeah, Wine for Normal People is a great podcast. It's the number one wine podcast. Is it? Yeah, in terms of the rankings, what I've seen, it is the number one in the wine space. I think she does a great job in kind of making it a wine approachable, which is something I think we all need to keep doing. Switching into actual the product of wine, what is the best wine you tasted in 2020? I'll jump on that. I was thinking about that recently. I can't just pick one. I'm going to have to pick three. So <laughs> Okay, Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> I see your Instagram. I know what you drink. You can name three. Burgundy is really tough this year, but the one wine that kind of like shocked me was 2017, Laguerre Belair La Romani. Young wine is never really on the list of the best wine, but that wine is so shockingly good. But then pivoting to old wine, a few weeks ago, I had, not to, you know, brown nose too much, Carlton. I had a perfect bottle of 74 Heights Martha's Vineyard, and it was absolutely incredible. That was an expensive night. Uh, yeah, you can taste the history. <laughs> you can taste the history behind it. Then finally, I had an opportunity to have a great bottle of Shop Cuvée Kathleen. It had the 91 and it was... Oh, it's an exceptional one. Oh, my friend and I, just two of us drank it. Just two people. That's definitely a two-person bottle. No more. Yeah, we sat there and we we're like, yeah, we get it. We get it. Because the first one I opened, a 2000, was corked, which is really sad. And Jean-Louis was like, if you come to the winery, I'll open Cuvée Kathleen for you. You know what's incredible? about that wine is in just about Shab in general is, you know, if you look at Burgundy, I guess people used to say, well, you know, there's DRC and there's everyone else sort of thing. And we know that's not true because this obviously Loire, I think, you know, excels uh, past this wines in a lot of vintages, but amongst other producers. But I think that Shab is the producer that I don't I think it's completely unparalleled on the hill of Hermitage. And again, that's only speaking from my opinion. And I don't think for me, there's anyone close. And they've held that crown for so many years that it's insane. There are small examples of vintages here and there where producers will make some absolutely insane wines. But I mean, they've just had almost a monopoly on the appellation of Hermitage for like that level. And the great thing when you visit Shav, you turn up at their winery and they have this tiny, tiny little sign outside that's kind of almost falling off its hinges and you go in and everything is so low key in the place. And then the wines are so out of this world. Yeah. I have the kind of the opposite experience of saying you've got to have two glasses. My favorite tasting this year, normally in a year, like all of us, you know, we go out and most of our wines we're tasting are at wineries or at these you know, amazing dinners, etc. And obviously this year that has not been the case. But I was lucky enough to do an online tasting, a Zoom tasting of 1998 and 1999 Petrus, Le Fleur and Le Pan. So kind of comparing the, the three over those two, both amazing vintages and great wines. But what was really cool was these tasting samples are maybe 50 milliliters for the bottle. You know, they're a good tasting sample, but for one person. Anyway, because these wines were so good, there was me and my husband and two friends of ours, and I did the tasting. So I tasted during the tasting itself. So I probably had maybe 40 milliliters left of each one. And the four of us split what was remaining of those wines between us. And because they were so good, like the 1998 Petrusse, is just out of this world. Explosive. There's so much to it. You can have like one tiny sip and it just keeps you going. And it was like it was Christmas morning. The four of us around these six tiny tasting bottles and kind of who was going to go first, who was going to taste them. It was such a happy experience and really kind of brought home how great wine just 
you share it. It's such an experience. And we didn't need a full glass. We just needed a tiny bit to kind of really spread the joy. That was a great evening. Yeah. I mean, those great wines bring so much bliss. It's like, you know, very few things bring joy to my life more than great wine and like incredible food. When we first sheltered in place, my girlfriend and I, she's also in the wine industry, we sort of went through that phase. I think a lot of people went through where it was like almost like the world's ending. Let's drink some great bottles. <laughs> and we would do this thing. We would dress up for dinner. You know, I, like I would legit like put on a full suit because we were so tired of like not going out and we would cook these big dinners. And one night we had a producer that I've always loved is Rene Angel, an O2 Rene Angel Club Rougeau. And the wine was absolutely ethereal. And we sat there, just the two of us eating like roasted chicken in our like suits. And I didn't even have shoes on because I was like, why would I put on hard sole shoes in the house? So I had a full suit and tie on with no shoes on drinking this wine, like eating this roasted chicken. And we had such an incredible night. It was her first time really having René Angel and his O2s are absolutely spectacular. And I love the idea of the young wine, a producer that I just started drinking maybe a couple of years ago. She's very young, it's, uh, Jamie Motley. She makes a Cabernet Sauvignon from the Peter Martin Ray Vineyard, which is a great historical vineyard up in Santa Cruz Mountains next to Montebello. And I never had Cabernet Sauvignon that was that floral and aromatic in my life. And I remember first, like my girlfriend and I, we tasted it and we were like, oh, well, you know, it's a little lean. And we put it aside and then we kept drinking the other wines. And like two hours later, the wine was like, it was so floral and like crushed, like dried violets. It was like all the things you wanted in classically structured. Cabernet Sauvignon with like piercing acidity. Like it was a brilliant wine from a vineyard that I had very few wines on, frankly. Great. I want to drink with all of you now. <laughs> and Robert, what about you? Robert, you have to tell us your best wine too. So I like old wines. So I've cracked open a number of things. I had a 64 Gaia that I thought was like in perfect shape. And it was just the regular bottling and it was just mind blowingly good. I had a 1998 Romanet Marche that one of the premier I can't remember off the top of my head that was I thought was really in its place. And then honestly, I've, had, I've been tasting a lot of old Napa and I'm always impressed by some old heights, but also Dun Howell Mountain. Those things with age are so brutish, but with age, they become so beautiful. And so I opened a handful of 91, 94s this summer, this period and, and drank them and they're absolutely beautiful. I mean, a dried out wax core capsule is a little annoying, but nothing a little cleanup can't cure. Yeah, we had an 87 Dunhall Mountain about three weeks ago. It's really funny because it was that era where people were not afraid of like a little bit of Britannomyces and things like that, and a little pyrazine. And there were the what we call the beautiful flaws. Exactly. And we loved it for that reason. It wasn't trying to be overly polished and pristine and overly clean. Like he allowed a bit of rusticity to enter the cellar, which is great. Definitely. That's how I characterize them as well. So, like beautiful rusticity. Okay. So, the true lightning round. So we typically end this visiting fatter of lasting trend. So we'll just say, I'd like you guys to say, I'm going to name a term and you guys just tell me if you think it's trending or fizzling for the coming year. Rosé all day. Trending. I think trending. I think because the price point alone, it's so cheap. <laughs> it's like everyone can afford it. It's great. It is the equalizer. Yeah. Rosé is not going anywhere. White claw. Trending. Trending. Unfortunately. I do not know what that is. Oh, no. <laughs> God bless America. I love this nation. You can tell me what it is. <laughs> White Claw is like an alcohol with fruit flavoring, but it's like a very light alcohol. Think of it like canned vodka soda with the cheapest vodka you could possibly buy and a lot of artificial flavoring. Okay. The first time I tried it, I loved it. And nice little packaging. Yeah, great packaging. It's very hot with a certain demographic. Like it's basically replaced the rosé parties by having the White Claw parties. Very affordable, a lot of flavor and alcohol. Okay. Well, the millennials need something to keep them going this year. So good for White Claw. Virtual tastings. Trending. I think they're likely to keep going. They're likely to keep trending, but I'm guessing there's going to be a point at which 
they've got to evolve to become more interesting and to work better for the consumer long term. I think they'll always be around, but they won't be as prevalent. Yeah. Okay. So starting to slow down a little bit. Okay, got it. Alcohol delivery. That's the only way I get my alcohol. Trending. Yeah, it's going to keep going. Trending. Absolutely trending. This year has opened people's eyes to other ways of getting the stuff they want, and they're not going to go back to not having it. Canned wine and other alternative packaging. 100% trending because of environmental reasons. Trending, for sure. Yep, trending. I think it's trending. I think it's just going to reach out to another age range and demographic that it's going to help the wine industry sustain. I saw Jamie Good did a little video on a bottle that could fit through a mail slot in someone's house. <laughs> My husband was so annoyed because a year and a half ago, he had the idea and he was trying to develop one. And then he's like, damn, now everybody's doing it. Instagram influencers. Trending, sure. I mean, there needs to be another market outreach for companies. And so they seem to benefit from it, even if it's superficial. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Although there was stuff like the clean wine scandal, tiny scandal, <laughs> but, <laughs> but the idea of internet influencers saying they have clean wines and then everybody jumping in behind them and saying, actually, that's bullshit. There's nothing clean about these wines. So yes, but the wine industry has got a lot of knowledgeable people in it who may be happy to point out when people get things wrong. So I would say, yes, influencers are going to continue to be big, but I don't know. I think there definitely will always be a counterbalance to them. Yeah, I think they'll always be around. I mean, they always have been around in one way or another. Right now, it's social media. Social media is very interesting because you can have a big influence and actually know very little. Where in the old world, you had to know what you were talking about. So, or you would get shunned away. You know, you would never have a platform. Social media gives everyone a platform, which there's a lot of pros to that as well, because it includes people who typically, like we talked about, either race or gender were not included. But there's a downside, which is there's a bunch of idiots talking about wine. <laughs> don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what they're talking about, but they look really good holding a wine glass standing in a vineyard. So. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. There's a recipe. You need a view, a look away, a flat brim hat. For someone who oversees over 500 plants a day because of vineyards in the Napa Valley, I've never once stood in the vineyard here and had a glass of wine. It's just not something you do. <laughs> actually, right. when you're actually working in a winery. You just don't. When would you do that? Is there like a wine dispenser, like a tap in the vineyard? Where'd the wine come from? BYOB. Direct to consumer sales. For sure. They're here to stay. Yeah. I think Bordeaux might be a special case in that way that there's so much vested interest in the way that Bordeaux sells its wine through the different layers that the big chateau is going direct to consumer. I think no. I think we're still a long way off that happening. Yeah. Burgundy prices going up. <laughs> yes. I'm hoping it stops, but based on all the wine I passed on in the 2018 vintage judo pricing, I don't think it's going to stop. I blame my people. <laughs> yes, sadly, I think you're right. Definitely. It's not going to slow down. It's a genius business model. There's a limited amount of it and a whole lot of people want it. And structurally, the wines can be drank very, very young or they can be cellared. It's a pretty unique situation. Yeah. Although we should all remember that what you said right at the beginning, there is going to be an economic slowdown that's probably going to be pretty hard in 2021. Surely that's going to impact on fine wine prices. Bordeaux continue to be undervalued. Well, I think white Bordeaux maybe is undervalued. I think there's still a lot of slack in some Bordeaux prices at the top end. They can afford to lose a couple of percentage points. <laughs> I've always been a big fan of Bordeaux. Back when Bordeaux like wasn't cool, I was buying up a lot of Bordeaux because the prices, especially on auctions, were very, very approachable, especially for aged wine. I mean, there was a time where you could buy Bordeaux, especially from like the mid-90s, like that era. They were very cheap on auction. I was buying a ton of it, especially when I was in the restaurant industry. Now, I think people are starting to realize that the wines are really delicious. There's no such thing as a wine show when you think about it. They sort of just come in and out of popularity over time. And I think that Bordeaux is sort of back as far as people drinking it. Importance of wine critic scores, trending or fizzling? From a consumer perspective, not necessarily scores, but listening to critics is still as important as ever. 
But now we have the ability to interact and understand critics more than just being words on a paper. Like Jane is on this podcast right now. I did an interview with William Kelly two days ago, and you're connecting with these wine critics. They're not just a number anymore. You're understanding who they are. And because of that, I feel like, like Jane, it gives you more power and it gives a name and a voice and a face behind these scores. And then you understand where they're coming from. And when you understand where someone's coming from, it gives them importance and it gives them support because you support them as a person now, not just a number. It's certainly true that wine critics are only as useful as you have to know what it is they like, because otherwise you've got no way of putting their scores into context. So you're right. The more that wine critics can actually make a connection directly with people, then it's easier for consumers to understand, do they want to follow this person or don't they? Yeah, I think, you know, for someone who oversees wineries, we submit our wines for wine scores. And we also understand that type of wines that we make, not every wine writer is going to enjoy. And that's okay. We can't make wine for everyone. We obviously love when journalists and wine writers like our wines. We typically are far more interested in reading when people actually write stories about the wines. Because I think you have the opportunity to learn more about what the wine is than just like a number. Because as Jane said, like with no context, a number just doesn't really say a whole lot. And you don't understand the writer's philosophies, you know? I mean, I think that's really important. And for those that are following the scores in the writers who are making them, they do have the opportunity to now find out what are their philosophies and what does that score mean? Is it, do I like it or not? Or is it, is this great for this style? And those are very different conversations. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And also scores in themselves, they have to be put in context because when are you drinking the wine? What is it you're wanting to do with this wine? Is it to impress someone? Is it just to sit at home with your girlfriend in the evening? I mean, there's so many different things that a score can only ever be one tiny fraction of the whole thing about a wine. So I am so happy that now it's not just about the critic scores and that you're looking at different sources, different people. I think that's all for the good for the consumer. Yeah, it's definitely interesting to see as critics can step outside of their publication and actually be seen. I think that's a huge point in terms of getting to know them as people and palettes and what interests them and then see where those things align. I think that's one of the benefits of technology and social media platforms. I want to thank you all. You know, Obviously, we've covered a lot of ground. It's going to be our longest episode. I want to thank you all for coming and scheduling this and then taking your time out of your busy days to cover 2020 and looking forward to 2021. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you, Robert. Can I give you all a quick shout out on your Instagram? I have Carlton at Carlton McCoy, almost a thousand posts now. And then Jane.Anson on Instagram, beautiful photos in Bordeaux. And then obviously Robert at Wine Terroir and then me, myself, ClayFood.Wine. Awesome. Yeah. Please follow everybody on the show and this episode. They each have their own areas. Obviously, I want to shirt this as I want to drink like Charlie Fu. <laughs> <laughs> we all aspire to that. Robert. That is true. Exactly. <laughs> One day. And then obviously Jane writing for Decanter in her book and check out her book Inside Bordeaux. And then obviously Carlton, when we can, we're going to come up and visit Heights Cellars and the other properties. We'd love to have you. I'm looking forward to being in a stylized golf cart. <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah, we do. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. cheers.